The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in November 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Today we welcome the Tony Award-winning, Drama Desk Award-winning, Outer Critics Circle Award-winning, and Olivier Award-winning actor. <laughs> wow. That's a, that's, a, that's a mouthful, huh? It sure is. Shuler. I've never heard it at, at the same time. Shuler Hensley, who's winning, winning all those awards, of course, for Oklahoma, the revival here in New York in 2002 and a couple years earlier in London. Other shows include Tarzan, the recent uh, Disney musical, uh, Broadway debut in Les Miserables, the Great American Trailer Park Musical, the Off-Broadway Show, and currently playing the monster in Mel Brooks' Young Frankenstein. <laughs> that has to be a real hoot, doesn't it? It's unbelievable. I mean, you, um, you're you constantly bombarded with people who know the film and grew up with it, and and then the image of Peter Boyle running around in everyone's mind, so it's it's pretty amazing. And you've played the role several times before, both the movie Van Helsing and also some other productions of, of Frankenstein, the yeah, Frankenstein story. Yeah, I tend to... For some reason, maybe I was a, I don't know, a pterodactyl or something in a previous life, but I, I tend to have these monsters and sort of shady characters, and uh, I love playing them, and um, I have two kids under the age of seven, so anytime daddy can be a monster, it's it's a good thing. A monster or a gorilla? Yeah, a gorilla, <laughs> there we go. Anything anything that occasionally gets down on all fours, that's fine. But uh, also physically, you're, what, six foot threes, and you're, you're yeah, a big guy, I'm so you kind I'm of a, fit for the role. About a, I'd say a middle linebacker size um, on stage, which, yeah, you know, it's, it's sort of lends itself to these kind of roles. Well, did that previous experience playing various uh, Frankenstein monsters, uh, did that lend itself to you getting the part? What lent itself to getting the part really is working with Susan Stroman uh, almost 10 years ago now in, in the um, revival of Oklahoma over at the National Theater. In, in, in London. Yes. And it was funny because we did the um, Dream Ballet, the three actors who played Curly, Lori, and Judd, we all did it, and it's usually done by dancers, but um, Susan's gift is to get, take whatever you can do and make you look fantastic doing it. So I sort of would fool around um, during breaks and do some intricate ballet moves, because I grew up, um, my mom was a ballet director, and just to have a big guy jumping around doing that uh, we sort of said, you know, we've got to find a project some at some point where I, I can sort of be a hoofer and a dancer. And when this came around, it was sort of a no-brainer. We were like, yes, finally. In, in a way, it's kind of like the hippo in Fantasia. Exactly. <laughs> e except for the pink tutu. No tutu, right. And no point shoes. <laughs> well, you already mentioned the iconic stature of the original film of Young Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. So coming into this show, first of all, were you someone who'd seen the film and indeed had you seen it more than once? And how did you go about not doing Peter Boyle's creature, but yours? Um, interesting enough, of, uh, yeah, I did grow up with the movie and I, I have some very vivid images of the movie in my head, I think, as does everyone. But I really haven't seen it in probably... At least five years, just because, you know, it just happened that it wasn't on or, you know, I wasn't sort of searching for it. And it's one of those movies that I think you, is in you anyway. 
So when I found out they were doing this and I was going to be involved, I said, absolutely no way am I going to watch the movie because you can't recreate those roles. And I personally, I don't think you should try because, you know, Peter Boyle was Peter Boyle and it's a magical performance and it shouldn't be recreated. So I think that was pretty much the consensus of the cast um, with the exception of maybe some nuances for for other characters but uh so what was liberating was to be in the room with Mel Brooks and going back to the actual text and the the show itself on paper and sort of finding um you know new things and and sort of new inflections and and with the added songs it it sort of became a a new show with all the um the points in it that everyone recognize and and you see it in the audience when the hermit cottage rolls out it's like ah yes so it's it's one of it's sort of the best of both worlds i think you mentioned working with mel brooks and the text certainly there's a fairly unique relationship between mel brooks who directed the film and mm-hmm. indeed had directed the producers and then his working with susan stroman can you tell us about in the rehearsal room how they work with each other and how they work with the cast. It's very interesting. Mel is, and he has been until uh, today. You know, we've opened, uh, he's been in rehearsals and at every show we've done. And he's constantly backstage. You know, I guess it's the old school form of comedy because it's really a science and it's always about what works and what doesn't in terms of you know, the big laugh or the momentum of, of the comedy because it's, you know, Mel was a drummer. So it's, he's very rhythmically oriented when in his comedy and you can see it when he's thinking things out. And, um, you know, Susan's gift is also rhythmical and it's also the dance and, and it's sort of like the show has become a long dance. It's about movement and momentum and so they both bring these incredible, unique gifts to the table, and they it just sort of melds over time. I mean, she she sort of keeps him in line because Mel's very animated and very, you know, gung ho about things. And um, so it's a it's a nice marriage they have in in directing these things. And then, what was their counsel to you about how to approach this character? Um. It's interesting, and I've I've found this to be true in pretty much uh, Oklahoma with Trevor Nunn as well, is that I think the true gift of a director is just that, is to direct someone, but not to tell them how to do it, but just sort of uh, the the more uh, subconscious you can be in guiding someone to the, the goal you want, the more they feel like it's it's been a creation that they've been either you know mostly um, a part of, or that you're not aware of somebody telling you. And I I felt that I never had a sense of them wanting me to do it a specific way. They wanted me to find the creature for myself. But within that, it's about the setup, the delivery. You know, if there's specific jokes and things, then that's when they would get involved. Well, in some sense, 
the creature is the straight man for everybody else Absolutely. running around it's him. It's so bizarre because here you have this gigantic seven-foot, four-foot-wide green man who's pretty much the real guy in the show. I mean, he's the straight guy. He's the one with, uh, I think, a, a sense of reality about him that, that the audience can relate to. And then you have all these other crazy characters around. And it's similar. It's a... I think the show pretty much deals with the father-son relationship. You know, you have the Dr. Frankenstein, and his son is pretty much the creature. And they are the straight guys in the show. Um, even Gene Wilder talked about the fact that he's not so much of a comedian as he is a reactor in these. And that's what we are. We're reacting to all these lunatics around us. And I think that's what grounds the show and sets up the... The humor. And also your portrayal, you find a, a certain humanity in the mm. character. Yeah, I think I think because there's such a clear line in some of these characters that I'm playing, it's obvious I'm a creature or a monster or a grotesque, that in order for it to make an impact or for there to be a sense of reality, you have to have something within the the creature that people can relate to. You don't have to play a monster when you're clearly a monster and I think that's what makes it much more interesting to, to sort of play against the type. Now as an actor without giving anything away, <laughs> but people certainly who know who know the movie would, would know this um, you don't have very many lines until the very end of the show. <laughs> I you don't. have mostly grunts. Yes. So is that a challenge as an actor or does that give you new opportunities to try things? I feel like it goes back to Acting 101. I don't know if you guys ever took a, a beginning acting class, but one of the first exercises and one of the building blocks, I think, is the art of listening and reacting um, from what you're listening to. So pretty much my entire role is that exercise, and it changes every show because when you're free from dialogue and you're free from oh, here comes my line, you're actually so actively listening that you can hear the differences in the delivery of the lines to you, the energy within the the theater. I mean, it, it, everything changes. So I, I find it completely liberating and different from anything I've done. You mentioned before that you didn't want to uh, copy Peter Boyle's performance. What about Fred Astaire's performance in Ginger oh, Rogers, well, and the uh, famous putting on the Ritz number? Exactly. <laughs> it's it's funny. Um, it's a it's a law. It's it's a lost art form, I think, on Broadway. This 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 style of dance and this style of theater, and it and I think people really respond to it because. It's, you know, the, it's the movies you grew up with or, you know, the memories of, of when you were a kid watching the old movies. And so there's something very comforting about it. But then you put it in live theater and it's almost like you go back in time for just a moment and you realize, you know, there's a true talent there. The the tapping, the the big spectacle numbers, there's something to be said of that in live theater. And the one thing I love about or many things, but one of the things I love about this show is I feel like it's bringing a new audience to the theater who wouldn't go because of the power of the movie. And I've heard this at the stage door from people saying, you know, this is my favorite movie. We've never been to Broadway, but, you know, when I heard it was coming out, we wanted to come see it. And I think that's a that's a huge win-win for Broadway because you get people here 
who for whatever reason come because of the movie and then they're you know if they have a good time they go well we're here why don't we go see this or you know, and i think the live theater is is in need of that what sort of reaction do you get from those diehard fans of the movie it's it's always positive because it's uh it's more about the jokes and the uh-huh. scenes rather than you know oh i remember the hermit cottage or putting on the ritz it's it's all nostalgia, so it's not like, well, you didn't quite do it like Peter Boyle did. And, you know, I don't think people are expecting that. I think they just want that whole sense of fun that the movie brought. And do you get anticipatory laughter or reaction from the audience you as do. they see bits coming up? Well, yeah, when there's scene changes, and they're very recognizable scene changes, you can hear... Sort of like a no goodie from the audience, you know. Sort <laughs> when of the hermit's murmur. cottage yes. rolls on and he turns around, absolutely, you know, half the audience knows Before what they're anything in for, is said. and everybody else wonders why they're applauding. Yeah, yes. exactly. So it's a, it's a great cross section of ages and you know memories out there in the audience. It's it's pretty amazing. We were talking about the work that you have to do mostly with grunts and groans, but I I wonder also what the experience is to work behind that much makeup and that's another how that was developed in terms of making sure that your performance could come through and not be latexed over yeah it's it's another exercise a basic exercise of of um acting and that's the the mask work i mean there is something really liberating about sitting in a chair it takes about an hour a little over an hour but i'm in the mirror and i'm sort of watching myself disappear but not completely. You know, I have some specific uh, a latex forehead that, but it also has the creases that my forehead has. And but it's a it's an exercise where you can sort of just lose yourself and experiment with uh, what it's like to physically be a different person. And I have four inch platform shoes on, which took you know four months to learn to tap and dance in those. But um, so all that physical transformation is, you know, further separates the creature from Schuler, and, it, and it's liberating. It really is. Let's go back now and talk about how you got started, your background, and how you came to theater in the first place. My background, um, of all things, is my mother was a ballet director and ran a company in Georgia, and it's still today. I think they're going to celebrate their 50th in two years, 50th anniversary. Um, and I grew up going to the Nutcracker and being backstage. And my first stage experience was playing Fritz in the Nutcracker. And also being the little boy monster who, you know, breaks the Nutcracker. And and just being growing up with live theater and the, the energy that's in a theater with an audience and music and, you know, all those the combination of that and my father was an all-american football player so i had sort of the melding of arts and sports and i thought that was normal and, until i got to college and realized that um you sort of had to choose but uh so i from a very young age theater was a huge part of my life and then you took vocal lessons in college and got a master's degree in, i did in i i um my mom always i, I had a good boy choir voice I, I was with the atlanta boy choir and we traveled the world and she always stressed classical training 
which I I wholeheartedly agree with in terms of no matter what what area you tend to go off in, if you have a classical foundation, especially in singing, then you learn to support properly and, and project and whatever. And so I, with that in mind, I went to school at the Manhattan School of Music, studied opera, and then the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia. I love opera, but I always knew that I wanted to sort of go into the more of the musical theater realm and straight acting realm, um, but with that foundation. But you have performed major roles in, in opera. I have. I've done Don Giovanni, and Marcello in La Boheme, Papageno, so a lot of the baritone rep, um, and I love it. And, and, and also singing in, in the different languages, actually, my first big musical theater job was uh, the Phantom in Das Phantom der Oper in Hamburg, <laughs> singing it in German. So it was, you know, it's, that was sort of like the the first experience where everything came together. My training in the, the singing of other languages, musical theater, you know, legit singing, big orchestras in, in Germany. So it was... It was fun. Well, how did that role come about? It, you don't normally think of going to Germany to be the Phantom. Well, the uh, the, the producer Stella was the production company in in conjunction with the Phantoms here, and they would come to New York to audition opera singers because it was a much darker, more legit sounding show than it 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 is in Broadway, and they, and they cast the the darker voices for for the Phantom. So I had auditioned here and. Uh, I'm curious because I often hear about actors who've gone and done sometimes these very mm-hmm. these major German productions. You hear a lot about people working in Germany for a year or yeah. two, or you hear about the European tour. They cast an American to mm. go sing in German. Yes. So the first question is, how did they prepare you? If you you had opera training, so you were used to singing in other yes. languages. How about acting in other languages? Well, it was it was a complete immersion. I think it. Because I haven't done it, I think it would be like going to any country as a you know a, an exchange student, and you're sort of immersed in it. They were trying you know pretty much to talk to you in German, so you got a sense of the language, and then rehearse, rehearse, rehearse in terms of the show. And it 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 sort of there does come a, a time where it just sort of melts into your subconscious after a while. And it's it just is a, a real experience. But what about the experience of being picked up from working in America and put into a German production? Was it an American company? Or yeah, you- there was a lot of of Americans that came over, and and a lot of former Eastern European. And in, at the time, I'm thinking this was '96, something like that, mid '90s. There was a a really coming together of of all these different, uh, you know, cultural backgrounds into these shows, and they were extraordinarily popular in in Germany. They were building huge musical theater buildings for for the Andrew Lloyd Webbers, and you know, all these these shows. So you you'd have your your uh, English buddy. I still some of my best friends are the the guys I I uh, hung out with in Hamburg, and they're all back. You know, they're all back in New York or L.A. or some are still in Germany, but you know it's sort of a it makes a lot of London people because um, you know that's just where they they went because the true 
the true training of that musical theater as we uh, the western musical theater as we know it the english from london and new york was a bit foreign to i think the german actors so it was a nice training of us teaching them what american musicals were about it and then teaching us about the the german flavor of theater and what well, about audiences was there a difference in audiences over there there was there was um i think the 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 uh the flavor of the show changed tremendously because of the language you know i could uh, like the for instance it's it's easier to listen to it um the music of the night you know we hear the lighter um baritone voice you know in the english but in the german it was <laughs> you had all these consonants and just this darkness that took over and and it w- it made it a you know a really original production of something that was familiar to us and the german audiences loved it loved it well, talking about an original uh, production or, or a different sort of a production of something that's so familiar to us, you went from the German version of the fandom <laughs> right. to the London version of Oklahoma. Yeah. And as I understand it, you were coming back uh, visiting your your wife is, is English, Paul yes. is English, you were mm-hmm. visiting her family in England, and you heard that uh, they were casting for Oklahoma, Trevor. Yeah, Nunn. it was interesting. Paula and my wife and I got married just before we went moved to um, Hamburg. And then, so on the way back from New York, we decided, we you know, we're going to take a month, go see her family, um, see England, you know, London theater or whatnot. Her brother was in involved in um, theater management there, so he sort of was in the know of, of West End and the National Theater and what was coming up. And while we were there, we found out they were doing a production of uh, Oklahoma, so being the New York actor, I was like, got to get an agent, got to get into that audition. And um, I did. I picked up an agent there and went in and um, Trevor was there and Susan and, you know, all the all the national theater people. And it was one of those right place at the right time kind of moments. Now you had uh, you had done Oklahoma in a couple of productions before, mm-hmm. very not not Broadway, but you know regional regional productions. right. Yeah, yeah, so you had done both Curly and and uh, yeah, and, and it was a very interesting um, background having done both characters and sort of it sort of just completed your your thought process in terms of what the relationships were uh, really and um, you know the different mentalities of of the two characters and then. When I was in London to add Trevor Nunn to the mix, he's probably the most thorough um, directors in terms of of source material and research of time periods and and just you know what what was life like during this period and and you know it, it's it's immaculate. He used to have just walls and walls of photographs. Of the of the time that that the Oklahoma was set and the earthiness and we'd do exercises where we'd be a a village and it was interesting because we're talking about um, the creation of of a town and of a state and when when our country was forming and it was from it was 
people who came from everywhere, from all over, you know, Europe and whatever. And so the National Theater's production was literally that. We had guys from Scotland, England, Germany, Hugh Jackman from Australia. He he came in the first rehearsal. He he didn't have shoes on. He was like this earthy Australian, <laughs> bigger than life guy. And so we created a a, a town out of the, out of that, and, and it, it sort of just formed itself. And I think Trevor's um, genius was he knew that when he cast it. Casting is a huge gift. When you cast something beautifully, it's sort of, you can sort of just let it ferment and develop in, in itself, and that's what he was doing. And I recall you telling me once before that for the first three or four weeks of rehearsal, you didn't sing any Not songs. No, no, You did it as a, as a straight play. Mm-hmm. We, we completely found the text. That's another huge thing is what what's in the text, and a lot of times within the songs and that's the brilliance of Rodgers and Hammerstein is their their each word means something in their songs as you know as beautiful as the music is there's there's something to be found in it and a lot of times because of the beauty of the music you don't see it so we we pretty much did the whole show as a play for for weeks 3 weeks i think yeah. Having had the opportunity to see it over there, I was struck by the fact that the show was played with absolute realism. Mm -hmm. And I wondered whether part of that was because in America, we all know Oklahoma Mm -hmm. so well. And if you put together a new cast for Oklahoma, even of terrific people from over here they've grown up with it they did it in high school they did it in regional theater they did it in stock and whether it was the fact that perhaps you were the only american with that baggage mm. in that company did the did the english the scottish the, the the australian actors have preconceived notions about what oklahoma should be i think they had their own their own history with the show because it was wildly popular in in england and I think it was it was more about bringing these groups of people together for this production because there was a sense of foreignness between me and Hugh Jackman just because there was he's Australian and I'm American and so it was sort of finding and each country has a different rhythm in the in their speech and in their mannerisms and it just sort of created a, a new, a, a new aspect to this show, and it's funny because if you do the text work and you do go back, like we did in Young Frankenstein, I think, if you go back to the written word, there's a lot of things in there that you find that don't exist with the movie and with the the images we have in our head, and. Um, and I think that's that's what uh, changes dynamics with with the characters as well. When the show transferred to New York, there were some casting changes. Mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, Hugh Jackman did not come to New York and do it, but you did. Right? Uh, was there any difference to the New York production other than the people? Any substantive changes made for a New York audience versus a London audience? There wasn't. I I don't think there was any conscious changes, but I think it does go back to history and what that show meant to us as Americans as opposed to 
you know, Europeans. And so there was a, because I was, uh, Josephina Gabrielle came uh, as well. Um, but because I had experienced it there and here, it's sort of an energy that was different. It's not really definable, but you could maybe in uh, the sense of urgency changed because we're on Broadway and here's a revival of Oklahoma, the quintessential American musical. Um, I think it uh, it had its own energy. But also working with American actors who have a different backing, a different background, different training than do other Yeah, actors. and I find I find a and this is not anything in particular with specific actors in America, but there's a different respect for theater in England. It's a noble profession. It's a, you know, you had all these actors who were in the ensemble who were journeyman actors who would go from Oklahoma this week to Shakespeare the next. And, you know, it's government subsidized the, the theater. So you feel like this is a profession. This is you know, this is what I do. I am an actor. Here, I think people, the definition of an actor has been sort of um, tainted in terms of, it's not an actor they want to be a lot of times, it's a star. And there's a huge difference because of the melding of movies and television and theater. You know, people see it as a journey to stardom. Um, and not as this is what I do. I'm a theater actor. We mentioned earlier that Oklahoma did not go directly from London mm-hmm. to New York. And in the interim, you had the opportunity to make your Broadway debut in Les Miserables. Can you tell us about coming into that show? Well, I'll I'll say my history, personal history with the show was that uh, I came to New York, I believe it was... 1987 with my brother and mother having never been to a um, Broadway show and I I think that was the year it it opened and we heard about the show and I said you know it's sold out but I'm going to wait in line I'm going to wait and of course my my brother and mother went shopping (laughs) 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 so I think I was there for about six hours I was next in line the uh, the the uh, window was closed Um, the show was starting in something like five minutes and all of a sudden the window opened and the woman said what do you need I said I need three tickets and that's pretty tall order and she said don't know what how you've been living, but you're lucky. She gave me three tickets, fifth row center, and curtain went up, and there it was. This show that was just unbelievable, you know, with the original Broadway cast and the magic. So that was my introduction to the show, and um, when when I had an opportunity to uh, to do it, there was not a question about it because it's. It's just one of those uh, rare opportunities to be a part of a, a show that's complete. And um, Trevor Nunn, once again, you know, and so it's it's um, it's pretty amazing. And perhaps getting typecast as Javert, kind of the villain. Yeah, it was, and it was a um, another. All these all these roles are 
are typecast themselves as, you know, the villain in the show, but there's so much more to them. It goes back to that idea that, you know, a psychopath or a villain doesn't really consider themselves to be a psychopath or a villain. They think they're right and everyone else is wrong. So if you come into the role like that, you're sort of, you just have to figure out where they stand and um, then then it sort of takes care of itself. But yeah, and the music is glorious. Javert's music is some of the best for baritones, period. So. Well, as you point out, there's an obvious connection between Oklahoma and Les Mis for mm-hmm. you because of the personnel. But we should say that when you did that Oklahoma, the word of you reached back to America mm-hmm. pretty fast, especially people saying, who is this mm-hmm. American who's a star mm-hmm. now in London? What did that do for your career? Was there other interest at the time in you? Were were people clamoring for you to come back and see what you could do? Yeah, it was... Um it was one of those things where I knew I really wanted to, at some point, get back to New York and be a part of the American scene, and I really wanted to do it um, with Oklahoma and use the momentum from the show, you know, and I think there were, pro- not knowing the specifics, there were problems bringing it in terms of bringing a certain number of cast members who weren't American, you know, the equity issues and, and so forth. So it sort of delayed, uh, it sort of lost its momentum. Um, but in the meantime, I really wanted to, to use what was there to, to get on Broadway and to sort of start experiencing this whole world of theater. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was... Uh, it was just uh, it w- wanting to continue while while I was sort of in people's minds, and it was easy because you know Cameron Macintosh was involved in both, and um, I think it was a way really for him and for me to stay in that family and until the Oklahoma thing was was sort of ironed out. It also gave you a paycheck for a yeah, while. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Oklahoma exactly. Day, right? Well, Oklahoma then did arrive in uh, 2002. You did that for a year or so, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then you went off-Broadway to do the Great American Trailer Park musical. Right. Was that a concern of yours, doing an off-Broadway show after this great Broadway success and West End success? It wasn't. I, the The thing about it is I, I there's so many interests I have as an actor. Um, and from Oklahoma, I used pretty much knew I wanted to do something different than just the theater. So after Oklahoma, I did the movie Van Helsing and, uh, sort of that took up a long time because it was a, you know, a pretty big movie in terms of the, the amount of time it took to shoot it and so forth. And so that, that was a nice change of direction and energy because I don't, my I guess my fear is not I I don't want people to define me too much in terms of what medium I do. I mean, if I'm a villain, fine, but you know I'd like to do the different art forms. So coming back to Broadway, my concern or the theater, it's never it was never about you know I got to find a big show to do. It was more about the project, and I thought that uh, Trailer Park was a delightful 
piece of theater, a uh, different style of music, you know, a different, completely depart, uh, complete departure from, you know, the classic Broadway-type musical. And it was a great cast, and it was a fantastic sort of re-entry into the community of New York theater. It's also a role where you didn't die. You know? <laughs> no, and I got both the girls, so I was, well, it was the, a plus. Well, the the, the uh, storyline is set in a trailer park in northern Florida, mm-hmm. which uh, you're from Atlanta. You yeah. have relatives in southern Georgia, so yes. you could identify with that, I guess. It was it was frightening how I could identify with, with the different characters. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a whole... A whole different uh, way of life in the South, and um, and the music fit perfectly with that. And playing the toll booth collector, mm-hmm. uh, what what sort of a, a motivation did you find in that? You know, this this guy whose wife is uh, afraid to come out of her trailer, and then the stripper moves in next door, and mm-hmm. you get to play kind of a leading man for a change. Well, it's interesting. It's one of those stories I think, um, which isn't just southern you know it's it's universal in terms of feeling like you're stuck in a dead-end job and with no excitement in your life and you know no sense of what's beyond the trailer park um and that's that pretty much was the whole uh triangle in this you had your wife who couldn't leave didn't want to leave that world and then all of a sudden you next door there's this woman who's you know represents everything outside of of your little safety zone and uh the you know the attraction you have for that and and what happens as a result of you know getting involved with someone like that so pretty amazing it's a long way from singing opera <laughs> yes, it is <laughs> but it's interesting because it's it just it's like doing a recital i mean i love because in, uh, in some of my f- most f- memorable recitals, and uh, one that sticks in my mind was Jesse Norman came to Atlanta, you know, huge opera star. Um, and on her program was the typical, you know, the Brahms and the, the opera arias, but she ended the program with spirituals. And the what that meant to her and, and seeing how she... It just completely changed, and she transformed into a different artist, even though it was... And that's what I felt about Trailer Park. I know this music. I grew up with the, you know, the country twang kind of music, and it's in me, and I hear it. It's just, uh, you know, it was a chance to sort of go to that side of, you know, my life. I have to say connecting Great American Trailer Park Musical to a Jesse Norman recital <laughs> is, is some, somewhere I thought we'd never go. So let's go from that to your next Broadway appearance, uh, the Disney production of Tarzan. Mm-hmm. Now we've talked about you playing Frankenstein's creature. Here you're playing a great ape. Mm-hmm. What was the initial approach to you about being in that? Was it something you auditioned for, something came directly to you for it? No, I auditioned, and it's interesting because I didn't really find out about how the audition process went until recently. Um, Tom Schumacher wrote a book, a children's book, about putting on a musical. And we should say Tom Schumacher is the head of Disney Theatrical Productions. And it's an extraordinary look at what it takes to 
build a show on Broadway, but it's written so that kids can understand. It's very, and in the book is a a little section on my audition with a picture of me. And um, what it said was basically when I came in, I was not at all what they were looking for, um, which is, uh, I think, a huge lesson to learn as an actor. But what I felt about the song and what I sang was something that they had never seen, but it was so interesting to them that it got them thinking, you know, of a different route for this character. And, I, you know, I think the animal kingdom, maybe that's, you know, the dynamics or, or whatever. And this role in the movie, Kerchak, is not really clearly defined, you know, other than being the, the leader of the tribe and sort of opposed to Tarzan being in the guerrilla community. So I think it... it um, it sort of just happened um, through the audition. Did they ever tell you what it was they were looking for and what is it that you ultimately brought to the role? They never said, and, and it's interesting, I think, I don't think they knew exactly what they were looking for, but, it, it you know, when you think of me, I don't, I don't think I was in there even in their minds about that, but um, I, re- I remember the audition and I remember thinking, you know, here's an animal, um, you know, you've got a suspension of disbelief going into it, but that once again, he's uh, very intimidating, larger than life, ruler of the jungle. Wouldn't it be interesting within the song to show a vulnerable side or a side that plays against that? And I think, as an actor, I think, and all the all the um, roles and characters in film and theater that I really are most memorable to memorable to me are when the actors depart from the stereotype, even if it's just for a moment, just to reveal. Just even in in two bars of music, another side. I think that's that's what happened in that audition. Well, you spoke before of uh, Trevor Nunn doing tremendous amounts of research into mm-hmm. Oklahoma or other productions. How about you? Either for the audition or for the show itself, did you do research as to into apes, into Tarzan, I, into Edgar Rice Burroughs? Um, and we did a lot of uh, the the rehearsal process for this was pretty much. The first six, four four weeks, something like that, a long period of time, almost a month, where we got to know these characters physically. We did, uh, they had videos, extensive video research of how apes walked and how they communicated and how they, you know, lived their lives on a daily basis. And that's, we did exercises with that without speaking once again, you know just to get the physicality in our bodies. And I went to the Bronx Zoo a number of times um, just to to see what it, it's like. And it, it's a fascinating uh, gorilla um, thing they have up there. You know, it's pretty, one of the largest in the country. And um, that was invaluable because there's something, a way they carry themselves and, and move physically that's 
pretty pretty unique. Well, Phil Collins, who wrote the score, the music and the lyrics for Tarzan, told me that he had never written music for somebody else to sing. He'd mm-hmm. always done his own music. Mm-hmm. So here he was writing a Broadway show. And he said it was kind of strange having other people performing his music. Yeah. How was it for you performing Phil Collins' music and working with him on the show? Well, it's one of those circle of life, to borrow uh, a line from another Disney, the circle of life. My first concert was Genesis as a teenager, and I remember it vividly. And remember, who is that guy on the... They did this drum duet thing. You know, it was uh, incredible. Um, and then to find out that Phil was writing the music, and and he actually, you know, when I when we started working together, they sort of came up with Kerchak's song, because I, I don't think they were planning on him singing as much um so it felt like you know phil went off and and brought back this song that was you know written with me in mind so it was one of those i can't believe this is happening things and he's he's actually a a dear friend of mine now i've gone to see him on when they came back for their tour and better seats than when you were a teenager no doubt (laughs) but they did the same drum song and it's (laughs) just as magical it's pretty it was pretty much of a step back in time. Kind of like deja vu all over Exactly. (laughs) We've talked a lot about physical approaches to characters, and certainly in the case of Tarzan, there was technique used to simulate swinging through trees and all of that, and I'm just wondering if you can talk about the physical training and the physical rigors of doing that show. Yeah, they, um, they really spared no expense because it's such a huge part of the look, the feel, you know, you have to have gorillas flying and, and, you know, whatever on the stage. And this whole concept of how they were going to do that sort of melded the, the talents of Bob Crowley and and then the De La Guarda group who, you know, their whole thing is about wire work and ropes. And so we had, uh, we had this whole system of, of sort of gymnastic playrooms set up at Steiner Studios and took six weeks of pretty much learning what it's like to fly on these bungee cords and and developing a safety because the the main gorillas in this that's all they were doing that constantly and the fact that there weren't more injuries than there you know there was an occasional twisted ankle or something but it was a testament to the fact that they just, you know, we practice and they actually designed the floor, which was a spongy sort of gymnastics floor. And, and the walls were inflatable walls. So if you hit the wall, it was like hitting a, you know, a cushion. Hmm. Um, and all that was a pretty amazing experience. I did the six weeks of, of wire work too. Then luckily I realized that, um, Silverbacks don't really swing and and climb and uh, swing from trees. So I was like, you know, they're they're sort of the ground dwellers. I, I don't I don't think I really need to to be swinging. <laughs> so luckily, I got out, I got out of that. Yes, but um, it was it was amazing to do. 
Well, you mentioned before you have two children under the age of seven. Mm-hmm. You've played the Phantom of the Opera. Mm-hmm. You've played Kerchak the Gorilla. Now you're playing the, uh, the, the monster in Young Frankenstein, all of which lend themselves very well to Halloween costumes. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts yourself of playing a role that does not lend itself to Halloween? Playing that would be nice, <laughs> although I've got to say, you know, until my kids reach a certain age, I think they've come to expect Daddy to be a different monster, and that's much more interesting than than me being myself. So it's funny that it, not a week goes by where they're like, "So you're going to go play the monster?" You know that, and their eyes light up, and I'm like, "Yeah, why should I leave now?" And then, yeah, go play the monster. And this Halloween, they they were going to be little baby Frankenstein monsters, but. Uh, when all was said and done, they they had to find their own their own unique qualities. So they went different well, ways. Are, are there are there any roles that you really are looking forward to that you really would like to do? Uh, Classic roles of any sort. There always are interesting. You know, I I um I love doing sort of do, uh, creating new and you know fresh. Thing. So, in terms of anything that I know as far as a revival, I'm. Uh, it's it always comes down to the role itself and the way it's written. So I, I'm just excited to continue, you know, sort of delving in. And theater is my life. I mean, all said and done, at the end of the day, I'm a theater actor. The energy of live audiences, and the fact that it changes every show. That's something that you really can't put a price on and it's something that I have to have in my life. Of course right now you are doing a classic role as the Frankenstein monster in Mel Brooks' Young Frankenstein. That's right. It's it's the Frankenstein monster but when you put Mel Brooks in front of it it <laughs> completely changes your concept of what that monster is and it's been just one of another one of those moments where you work with somebody like him for every day of the rehearsal process and those are memories that I, I'll always have. Well, Schuler, thanks so much for sharing some thoughts with us today on Down Stage Center, and uh, thanks for your performance as the monster in Young Frankenstein. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, Schuler. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding all of our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theater Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.